The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association takes this time to thank our 2023 corporate sponsors. Bristol Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, BioMarin, Tanaya Therapeutics, Edgewise Therapeutics, and Embrya. And thank you to our 2023 annual patient meeting sponsors. Bristol Myers Squibb, BioMarin, Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya Therapeutics, Edgewise Therapeutics, Rocket Pharmaceuticals, and Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, with additional funding provided by the J.T. Babbitt Foundation. Welcome everybody to Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Today I am joined by Dr. Martin Marin of the Leahy Medical Center up in Boston, well, Brookline, Massachusetts. And today the topic of our discussion is going to be septal reduction September. So a couple of years ago, we put themes on the months. September is also AFib Awareness Month. I should bring attention to that. It is also septal reduction September here at the HCMA. So we're going to take a few minutes this morning to discuss decision-making when it comes to managing obstruction with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Good morning, Marty. How are you today? Good morning, Lisa, and hello to everybody tuning in. So we have a new format here. We're through our new software, StreamYard, and we are broadcasting to our Facebook community, to our YouTube community, to LinkedIn, to Twitter, and to our private Facebook group. So if you have any questions from any of those formats, you can ask at any time. There's a slight delay between some of these technologies so and platforms. So if you ask a question, it may take a moment for it to populate. And behind the scenes here at the podcast, Ross Hadley from the HCM office will be dropping links as we are giving you resources and you can follow those links throughout the conversation. So Marty, yes. let's start by just defining what is obstruction? Sure. When we talk about obstruction, what we are talking about is when in, in HCM, the mitral valve okay, makes an abnormal motion and actually obstructs the blood flow being ejected out by the HCM heart. And that creates a real or true impedance to blood flow out of the heart. It's not because the muscle's thick, it's because in HCM, for a number of different reasons, the mitral valve, which is normally, which is regulating blood flow from the left upper or left atrium to the left ventricle, makes an abnormal motion, we call that SAM, it's another term you may have heard, systolic anterior motion, touches the muscle, it obstructs blood flow, and as a result, the pressure in the heart, specifically the left ventricle, is much higher than it should be. That's called the pressure gradient. So obstruction is the same term equivalent to pressure gradient. That's what's going on. How common is obstruction in HCM? So I should mention that the obstruction, the mitral valve touching the septum, resulting in the high pressures, that's a phenomenon that can be very easily seen with echo and those pressures accurately measured with echo. So echo is really the best test to determine obstruction. And when we use echo and we look at it on a lot of different patients with HCM, 
what we've learned is that the majority of patients with HCM have obstruction either at rest, just under resting conditions, or sometimes that obstruction develops with exertion, increased heart rate, but it's the majority, two thirds of HCM patients that have obstruction, one third that are non-obstructive. They don't have the capability of obstructing blood flow. In 2023, there are a number of different therapies that can be yep. utilized to manage obstruction. So let's start with the old school and work towards the new school. So, you know, obstruction is, is, is an aspect of ATM that's been part of what we've known about the disease since the beginning, right? Since literally the first patient who we know personally and who um, was diagnosed with ATM largely because of the obstruction being kind of the key feature. So we've known about obstruction right since patient number one. And over now 60 plus years, there's been um, an evolution in how, you know, how we treat symptoms that result from the obstruction. Okay, so usually, usually we're talking about treatments for obstruction when patients have symptoms from that aspect of the disease, which usually is shortness of breath, particularly with exertion. And the most classic example of that is with inclines like stairs or hills. Other symptoms from obstruction include being tired more easily for a certain level of activity, sometimes chest discomfort, and sometimes palpitations, sometimes lightheadedness too. So when you have one or more of those symptoms and we've tied it to the obstruction, with the echo, that opens up the opportunity for treatment, which you know remains today first line, meaning what we usually start with is medical therapy. And all the medical therapy options, all, by the way, different drugs, but they all are trying to do the same thing. They're lowering the pressure gradient, the obstruction, by trying to decrease how forceful the heart comes together, the contractility. And we start first with beta blocker. That's been our first line agent for forever. And then if that doesn't work, beta blockers don't work or there are side effects, then you can try calcium channel blockers. And sometimes we use both of them in combination. And the way we judge success, period, is uh, whether patients feel better. That's how we do it, okay? Patients feel better better quality of life, decrease in symptoms, that tells us that there's success with the treatment because the gradient is lowered as a result of patients feeling better. So beta blocker calcium channel, but that's our first line agent. Let's stop there. So we try the old school medications. Um, yep. A lot of patients have side effects from these and they're not right. particularly thrilled with their quality of life with those medications. And in 2023, What's the next step? Is it an evaluation of anatomy to see what might be the next best step for that individual? Or do we just immediately go to a brand new medication? How do we, how do we make those choices? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll, we'll talk just first in general. I mean, in general, I think for a patient with obstruction who is not feeling improved enough in their quality of life with beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, you know, I think at that point, that in the road there, the, here's what sort of the options are. That patient could pursue more aggressive, stronger, negative inotropic drug therapy for which there are two other options. There's disopyramide, which has been a drug around for over 30 years to treat symptoms from obstruction. And then there is the newer myosin inhibitor drug Mavicamptin or Camzios, 
and that it would also be fair at this point, and this is also supported by the the, the, the recent HCM ACCHA guidelines, that patients also can hear at that point too about invasive options. Okay, that would include both surgical myectomy or alcohol septal ablation. So really at this point, if, they, if a patient is frustrated on beta blocker calcium bilateral, there's really a, a variety of different options, two other drugs and two invasive options to hear about, to consider, and to consider. And as you just alluded to, and then I'll pause, there may be a number of different factors in a patient's sort of clinical profile, desires and wishes, their anatomy, that may influence whether we would put greater weight on one of those therapies over another. So it's a discussion that would involve other information to help determine what may be the best next course in treatment. What do we know about surgical myectomy? Well, surgery, what we know is that it's been around for over 60 years. And for that reason, we have you know, a lot of data, studies and data that tell us that uh, about its efficacy and safety, and also how well it does over long periods of time. And uh, to summarize that 60-year sort of experience is that the myectomy, and this is really important, when the myectomy is done, you know, in, in, in experienced centers with high-volume surgical operators with a lot of good experience, outcomes after myectomy are excellent, meaning that patients are restored to normal or near normal quality of life with low risk, meaning the operative risk today for the operation, again, in, in high volume experience centers is less than 1% for death, stroke, major bleeding, with generally between an 80 to 100% improvement in symptoms. When the operation is done in less experienced centers, with less experienced operators, the outcomes are not nearly as good, okay? And there is more of a limitation and challenge to get to experienced centers and operators for surgery because there just are less great surgeons that can do the operation, for example, than other, other types of cardiac surgery. So um, that's one of the limitations and challenges with surgery, but when done in experienced hands, as I said, we call it a high benefit, low risk, invasive procedure. So for those who may not want open heart surgery, they are afraid of it, and a lot of people are. Some people say, well, alcohol ablation seems much easier, but is it an equal procedure, and when should it be considered in somebody with obstruction? The the alcohol, you talk about alcohol subablation, which it's an invasive procedure, but it's less invasive than myectomy or cardiac surgery, not opening up the chest, it's with catheter. We call it a catheter-based procedure. So catheters are advanced into the heart from the leg. And then essentially we find the artery that supplies blood to the area of the heart muscle where there's the obstruction and then inject through that catheter alcohol, which creates a localized area of damage. And then that muscle thins to then eliminate the valve from obstructing blood flow. That's how the alcohol ablation works. And so one of the differences between alcohol ablation and surgery, just right off the bat, is that there's a little bit higher risk that a patient would incur damage or injury to the electrical conduction system that would require a pacemaker. It's about 10% with alcohol ablation, 
less certain. And the other point, there's about a 10% chance that the alcohol ablation just isn't effective the first time to improve symptoms. And then usually surgery at an expert center is a one time deal. Those are the two differences. On the other hand, recovery is much shorter with alcohol ablation, obviously, since you're not going through the chest and you're not being put on a heart lung machine. So recovery is much, much shorter, you're usually back to the normal routine in about a week. It's about two months with surgery. And then efficacy is, is very good with alcohol ablation too. I mean, you, generally we say that patients, 90 to 95% of patients that have, 90% of patients that have the alcohol ablation achieve about a 60 to 80% improvement in their symptoms as well. And so it's highly effective as well. And I think therefore it can also be considered high benefit, low risk procedure with the risk of alcohol ablation being about 1% chance of death, stroke, and major bleeding, kind of similar to surgery. The choice between surgery and alcohol ablation is one that involves incorporating a lot of different factors. Again, patients' desires and wishes. There may be different preferences about accepting risk for pacemaker and repeat procedure rate. Anatomy may influence whether one procedure may be more effective than the other. So really that's, again, speaking to the idea that a lot of these decisions sometimes have to be individualized based on these factors. So we've talked about the longer term medications that have been out there. We talked about myectomy, we talked about alcohol ablation, and now we are in 2023, we have one marketed FDA approved myosin inhibitor for those with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and we have clinical trials in the next generation. When should a patient consider myosin inhibitor therapy? I know I'm going to tease a, a webinar that we're going to have in a little while. We're going to be talking about all the clinical trials in myosin inhibitors on September 20th, and uh, you can register to join us for that session. Right, but right. what's the role today for somebody with obstruction if they want to take medication? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think I think that the answer to that is that almost all patients who have symptoms with obstructive HCM that are persistent and frustrating despite beta blocker and calcium channel blocker, again, should hear the option of myosin inhibitor therapy for sure. And they should understand where we are with that new drug in terms of understanding what the data is showing us right now in terms of both efficacy and safety, as well as some other, other issues which are a little bit more unique to that medicine than, than any of the other medicines we use in ATM, which means the need for monitoring with, with that drug, meaning longitudinal or follow-up echoes are important there and, and have to be done. Cost may be a little bit of an issue. There are a lot of different variables, again, there that need to be part of that discussion, but patients need to and should hear about that option if they're symptomatic despite first-line therapy. So there are a lot of options today. A lot of options. This fall, we're learning how to employ the toolbox more specifically, and we're still learning. It's not just, oh, there's a new medicine, let's all take that. Anatomy really dictates when somebody may or may not be appropriate for a particular intervention for the management of obstruction. Would that be true? Sure, that's absolutely true. And I think this is a good time to make a really important point. I mean, I think, and, and I, I say this not infrequently when I'm discussing the, the options of the patients. You're right. We've got lots of options here. And they're all, in, in a way, very good. In other words, symptoms due to obstructive HCM, I would say, is highly treatable today. And that's really important for patients to know because... There are lots of things out there that um, you know one can get that we have no or little options for. That is not the case here. Lots of very good options, 
highly treatable, to be able to restore patients back to an excellent quality of life. To me, that's a really important point to know if you're a patient. This is treatable. I think we're seeing a bit of a turn in the community. Yeah. Um, it's been a slow turn, but it's a turn. A lot of people who knew about their diagnosis and maybe would have called in a couple of years ago and said, what do I do? Where do I go? They're coming back now. And they're saying, okay, there's more options. Maybe, right, maybe right. I can listen to those options. And we're actually seeing an uptick in surgery, right? An uptick in myosin inhibitor utilization, yep, and yep. a decrease in beta blockers. This is yep. kind of what's happening. Even if somebody's been diagnosed a while and has been struggling with symptoms, and you know, HGM people, we we say we're fine, we're fine, we're fine. And maybe we're not really fine. We're just used to living like this. And now there are so many options available to us. People are now engaging at a higher level and they're coming out of COVID and they're going back to the doctors. So we're seeing more myectomies, more myosin inhibitors, a slight change, not really percentage wise in alcohol ablation, but we're seeing patients getting access to care and getting engaged and feeling a lot better. I think the main reason for that is the visibility given to this with new therapies, you know, that 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 these new therapy options have generated a lot of visibility, renewed interest, not just for the physicians, of course, but for the patients, obviously, just as you said, a lot of them coming kind of back into the fray a little bit with that and, and, and being able to engage their healthcare providers now with some of these um, discussions to achieve and pursue other options to make them feel really good where before that wasn't happening as much. So I think that that is a really positive, obviously, another really positive outcome. As I keep saying this past year, it's a really good time to have a bad disease yeah. <laughs> and we have more options more tools in the toolbox. Treatable. Treatable. Very treatable. Very, right. very manageable, treatable, and much more to come. Yep. So I think it's really important to let people know that if they go talk to their doctor about their obstruction, they don't have to go to surgery right away. They don't have to right. take a medication right away. They don't have to do an alcohol ablation, but they can learn about those options and how they impact that person's individual heart. So one of our um, fellow podcasters has gone off to have a myectomy and a mitral valve replacement two weeks ago. So Joey's not here doing production work this week because he had his surgery. But his valve was so bad that even if he did an alcohol ablation or if he was on a myosin inhibitor, the valve was the trigger of the problem for him. So can we discuss how different parts of the anatomy might drive different decision making? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a great question, and you know, it's it's there's a lot of nuance to that answer because there's a lot of different um, things to consider there. Maybe the right way to start is just to give an example, you know, and that that may be the most helpful way of of of, of kind of addressing that question. So, for example, if you're a patient uh, who has a very thick septum. Let's say it's very thick. We know that when the the septum's really thick with obstruction, that, for example, a catheter-based approach may not be as effective as surgery because of the anatomy, right? Because when you inject the alcohol, the alcoholation, because the muscle's so thick, extreme hypertrophy is what we call that, you may not be able to thin it enough to get normal blood flow out of the heart. 
take compare that for a minute or contrast that for a minute to surgery and why is that maybe something we should give greater weight to in that situation as a treatment it's because surgery different different way of getting to the top of that mountain with direct visualization real time by the surgeon who's able to take out as much muscle as we need real time to effectively eliminate the obstruction before you leave the operating room because of that. So that's a, that's one example where anatomy and understanding the impact of anatomy may sway the pendulum of a decision toward one procedure rather than another. And can we discuss the valve itself? Although it's really rather uncommon to have to have valve replacement, it still does happen. And what, what role does the valve play in evaluating obstruction? Yeah, there's a couple, it's a great question. There's a couple different ways of looking at that or, or kind of thinking about that. I'll give you sort of two. Sometimes what would happens is that the valve in HCM, the mitral valve, for example, can be really long, just the length of it, really long, like a sail. That's, it actually looks sort of like a sail when it's that long. And when you have a really long mitral valve with HCM, not everybody has one that's that long, but you can. When it is that long, then what happens is that, you know, that may be a situation where it, the valve makes contact or touches the septum in a different location than if it was shorter, okay, because of its flexibility. And that may be, therefore, a situation, for example, because of that, where an alcohol ablation, which is, which is only injecting in a certain area and may thin that area, may not thin it where it needs to be thin, and you may still have that valve obstructing blood flow despite the alcohol ablation. That may be, again, for that reason, a situation where surgery, which can allow real-time direct therapy, surgical therapy to the valve to shorten it up, stiffen it. We call that application, not a replacement, but a repair. In addition to the myectomy to relieve the obstruction more optimally than the alcohol ablation because of the mitral valve problem there. The other scenario just to mention is sometimes the mitral valve may leak, may leak quite a lot. Okay. And because of different reasons anatomically that you can't fix then in that situation with a catheter-based approach or drugs. That's another example maybe then, if that's the case, where surgery may be required to repair the valve. Well, I think we have covered all of the evaluation efforts that are needed to determine when somebody needs septal reduction consideration, whether it be pharmacologic, catheter-based, or surgical. There are options. I want to take a few minutes and, and, and because this is, this is a new toy that we're playing with in this podcast. So we have a lot of followers now from LinkedIn, and we have a cardiovascular surgery researcher here listening. And on the other side in our Facebook community, we have somebody who's just gotten their first ICD put in just a few hours ago watching us here. Awesome. And uh, not only do we have that, we have former colleagues of yours, Marty. Yvette says hi. Hey, Yvette. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We have one of our colleagues from the Cardiomyopathy UK group here, so welcome. We are now able to communicate on all these different platforms simultaneously, which is really kind of interesting. So just to make one point there, you know, I was just looking at some of the, the some of the um, people tuning in, noticed, you may have mentioned this too, but you know, noticed that you had somebody obviously from the UK. Yep. I think I also saw Iran on there. Yep. You know, that, you know, that also brings up a really important point. This is a global disease, 
right? I mean, it's a global disease. We, we, we sometimes tend to forget because we're living where we're living that, that this is not a disease of certain regions. It is a disease of the entire world. Right, exactly. And I think part of the increased attention that we were just talking about about treatments for obstruction, you know, is that's important because that that needs to be applied globally, not just to people in first world or U.S. Or, you know, it, it, we need to 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 as part of how we're going forward, start to really focus on initiatives that allow patients anywhere in the world access to these treatments. So thank you so much for teeing up our Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association International program. And you just teed that one right up. I will knock it out for you. We are looking for partners around the world. We do have some wonderful partners already, our friends at Cardiomyopathy UK. We've been kind of together for the whole run now. But um, we are looking for patient advocates in every country. We will help develop your skill set. We'll provide some training and and oversight and input. We will also um, be looking for physicians in different countries who are looking to be that KOL, that thought leader for your nation and help develop pathways for patients to be able to get to excellent care no matter where they are in the world. And we're also working with industry partners. Michelle Packard Millam is our center, our HCMAI coordinator. And if you're interested in learning more about the program, you can just pop on to the HCMA website and look up HCMAI and we can connect you to um, our resources so that we can build a stronger outreach worldwide and make sure that geographic location is not a a deterrent to quality care. I think that's a really important message. So thank you for bringing that up. I do want to give a shout out to the thing that's been rolling the entire time we've been talking. Our annual meeting will be October 21st. It'll be in uh, Morristown, New Jersey. If you are a patient and you would like to come visit and join us for the day, there may be travel opportunities available through our partners at Angel Flight. So you can contact the office and we can put you in touch with um, flight opportunities. And we brought the price way, way down because we've had such great sponsors. So for $99, we'll feed you pretty much all day and educate you and inspire you. So we will be talking about obstruction, myosin inhibitors, genetics, genetic therapies. We're going to talk about shared decision making. We're going to talk about all the different treatment pathways for HCM. So please do join us. Just just say that if you're a patient you know, who's interested to learn more, there is no better venue than this meeting to really increase substantially your knowledge and understanding about the disease. And one of the reasons is not just that there is, you know, incredible speakers talking on these topics, but it also allows the opportunity, you know, to engage the speakers personally, as well as other patients, of course. That kind of interaction and 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 dialogue will just increase enormously not only your knowledge, but comfort with understanding about the disease. There just isn't a better way to get to that kind of point than this kind of meeting. So I just wanted to kind of emphasize that. I'm gonna give a little bit of a history lesson. The first time I had a meeting was 1997 and uh, some guy named Barry Marin said, you should have a meeting. I'm like, why? He goes, just have a meeting. So I didn't understand the value. And then we had our first meeting and patients and clinicians started talking, ideas get percolated, patients get better educated, 
physicians get ideas. We develop ideas and concepts together. We find those gaps in care through conversation and communication that is only able to happen when you have that amount of time and we can expand on concepts together. So I I certainly encourage you all to to register and we're doing something a little different this year. We'll be wrapping up at like five o'clock. We'll take an hour off and then we're going to have a gala that night. So we're going to go from education to party and we're going to be raising money for the Lori Fund to assist people who need travel expenditure assistance to get to Center of Excellence Care. So it's going to be a great weekend and I encourage you all to um, enroll and join us. I think in person is the way to go. You just get much more out of it. Is there even a uh, option for virtual here? There's not going to be a virtual option because the price tag doubles, as you well know, by running meetings. We will have a couple of segments that will be broadcast after, but it will not be every segment because it's really expensive to do that. You got to come. You got to come. You got to come to Jersey. And for those of you who are concerned, because yes, COVID numbers are going up a little bit, we will have masks available. We will try to be distanced in the room. We will try to keep airflow running. We will have hand sanitizers available. Right, this right. Is no compromised individual may be in a mask for part of the event when we get kind of close to each other. So we're going to be cautious. We're going to be careful. And we're going to get out there and live our lives because yep. that's what we got to do. So we've had a lot of great comments here. Diane, we would love to have you involved. I know you've relocated out to Spain. Love to have you in as a patient leader in Spain. So contact uh, Michelle and we'll get you involved in that. We've known you for a long time and we have that purple hair thing in common lately. So that's great. I think I know who this is and you know who it is too because I think you had a myectomy this summer, which will tell you whose son that might be. But definitely come on down to Jersey. I think you'd get a lot out of the day. So bring the whole family. All right, guys, Marty and I have a meeting to get to in three minutes, two minutes. So thank you, Marty, for joining us for Tales from the Heart. It's been an informative session. I love the new platform and I'm really happy that people got to see us on all these different platforms right away and you can rewatch this at any time. Want to give two shouts out, Joey Graham, speedy recovery to you, my dear, and to our transplant warrior who just joined the team this week and is getting out of ICU today. Congratulations to you. We're thinking about you and your recovery. And thank you to the donor family who made that miracle happen. So um, thank you all. And we'll see you next time.